0: hi welcome to the mean i'm ryan huber and joining me as always is nicholas seagraves hey nick hey ryan how's it going pretty good pretty good and joining us as sometimes, or never until this day, is Dan Tracy. Hey, Dan.
1: Hi, everybody. Happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me to the podcast.
0: You're welcome, Dan. Dan is a PhD student in botany and plant sciences at the University of California, Riverside, where he studies plants and other stuff.
1: Yeah, that, that's the gist of it, just plants and stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. science planty um,
0: plant-y stuff.
1: <laughs> uh, basically, I mean, what my uh, research is focused on was... Um, uh, sort of biochemistry, finding inhibitors for um, uh, certain plant, re- uh, not receptor, but enzyme, biosynthesis enzymes that make the plant stress hormone, ABA, abscisic acid. And abscisic acid is the major regulator for, for all plant stress responses. So just um, so making
0: plants stronger, basically, is what you're trying to do.
1: Not stronger, not at all, actually. Okay, um, that's
0: not what you're trying Not to what
1: do. I'm trying to okay. do. Um, plants respond to stress by slowing their growth, um, closing their stomata so they lose less water, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, several other different mechanisms. Um, and they're all initiated by this hormone ABA. Okay. Um, if you inhibit the biosynthesis of ABA, that's going to be very bad for the plant overall, mm-hmm. uh, in general, if you just mm-hmm. put them on it, um, because they won't be able to respond mm-hmm. to stress.
0: It's like if we couldn't sweat or something. Yeah. It's a, that's a pretty good,
1: uh, analogy actually. Um, but, um, Another thing about ABA is that it inhibits germination because um, if you have a seed out in the environment, it doesn't want to sprout until it's in a uh, an environment where the conditions are right mm-hmm. for sprouting. Mm-hmm. So if you have an active ABA bio, uh, biosynthesis pathway, that means that it's, um, the plant's under stress and the seed won't sprout. Uh, but uh, for farmers, that's not always the best thing because um, what happens is every year, it doesn't matter, um, the conditions, you always get some seeds that won't sprout. And then you'll have seeds that sprout at different times. So you have asynchronous germination. The idea is, is if you have an inhibitor, you can spray onto these seeds uh, right after you plant them, you can get them all to germinate at the same time, and you'll get a more complete germination rate. So that's been kind of the goal.
0: So Um, you're actually, um, it's almost like allergy medicine, because allergy medicine we take to stop our body from responding to something Uh, yeah in a way sort of yeah uh
1: stopping a natural response that is uh Mm -hmm. maybe over um
0: yeah i think that's an allergy Just like a histamine blocker right so you're trying to inhibit this plant response so that things are more uniform so that plants can't so that you can grow crops in a more efficient way
1: yeah yeah
0: so the rest of the lab
1: focuses on other aspects of that pathway trying to understand the details of it um I'm on the biosynthesis side. Oh mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's my research.
0: Cool. Have you ever seen Silicon Valley, the HBO show? Yeah. Silicon I love Valley. That show. So you know, changing the world through middle out, you know, compression kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. Which so, would be amazing
1: if it existed. Yeah, it yeah.
0: So middle out compression is what they do, uh-huh. but the goal is to change the world through all these yeah. different ways. So what you just described what you do, but what is the goal of what you do? Like, well, how are you going to change I, the world? Okay. Yeah. So the Obviously, the huge goal,
1: mm-hmm. uh, we put this at the beginning of all of the papers, is, well, by 2050, the world's population is projected to reach 9 billion people. Mm-hmm. Um, meeting the feeding requirements of, of um, that many people is going to be a challenge for the upcoming decades, and this research will hopefully help to alleviate that challenge in some ways by increasing yields. Um, that's the goal for most um, plant research, is increasing crop yields. Um,
0: also making delicious oranges for children.
1: Yes, actually, uh, there's either commercial interests or you know social societal interests. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want me to talk about the oranges?
0: No, I uh, just thought you had told me that story. Yeah, years so ago and I
1: thought, well, I'll tell the story anyways. Um, the what UCR is famous for um, is uh, Mike Rus, who was former chair of our department. He still works there, but he's no longer the chair. Mm-hmm. Um, he developed an a mandarin variety, um, which was actually, it's a cross between a tangerine and a mandarin um, called the tango. Um, And it's basically just a seedless, easy to peel um, orange. um, And it was produced by mutating the budwood Mm -hmm. of the orange tree. So Mm -hmm. where the the buds of the flowers come up, he irradiated them. Mm -hmm. And then um, what you get uh, is you get a bunch of different uh, fruits from each bud um, and then you grow the seeds, see the, see the phenotype for each one, and then um, uh, you pick the most desirable traits. I hope I'm describing that accurately. Is
0: this genetic modification?
1: It' interesting that you ask that, because even though it's genetic manipulation, it doesn't count as a GMO. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so what's the brand name of these delicious small oranges? Cuties. cuties. or Cuties. Or, or or halos. Yeah. I see commercials for both cuties and halos. Yeah. Are they, um, are they the I same thing? I believe
1: that they're the same thing. Okay. I could be wrong on that.
0: They're basically like little sweet oranges yeah. for kids to eat that yeah. they won't They're choke seedless, on.
1: They're seedless, the peel comes off easily, and they have a little bit mm-hmm. more sweetness. than.
0: I'm sure the University of California at Riverside has benefited financially. From oh, that. yes. Yes, they yeah. cool. yeah. have. Nick, now that we've discovered the origin of cuties with Dan, um, you want to you wanna really put the screws to him and, and ask the the burning question that we have about just the world and the nature of plant life and, you know,
2: 9 billion people existing. There's a mythos, maybe in part from Hollywood, maybe from other sources, that we're kind of on this steep decline in terms of stability um, on the planet. And a lot of politicians and public thinkers always kind of default to this overpopulation, uh, scarcity of resources uh, type of language, and they point to things like, you know, obviously Africa is always a topic of famine discussion and other developing countries that are struggling to meet food demands and stuff like that. And I was just wondering, do you see a an a, a apocalyptic future on our horizon because it seems like everyone i talk to overpopulation and the resources needed to combat that is at the forefront of future predictions and, and i'll
0: add to that yeah. if 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 we have an apocalyptic future coming or if like let's let's be a little less dramatic and just say it's going to be really hard to feed as many people as we're trying to feed why then are the same groups of people I won't even ask the question that way. What do you think about the fact that the same groups of people who are talking about overpopulation and and the challenges of feeding the world often are also pushing for local organic slow food green let's read some poetry in a grove of naturally occurring banana sprouts or whatever like for you as a scientist how how, how do you see these this these two discussions Um, conflicting or coming together or being just interacting
1: okay so i think the best way to answer that question is to take it back a long ways Mm -hmm. um the issue between food availability food distribution and locally grown organic things um locally grown organic things can never hurt um but if you're diverting resources away from the larger scale distribution that will
0: hurt mm-hmm. so, so you're talking about like broad like uh, macro economics now yeah okay. Okay. so um can you say a little bit more about that so you're saying local organic stuff isn't bad but then you talk about converting resources so what do you mean by that
1: like if if somebody wants to open up their own little garden in their backyard that's great and that does help alleviate the um load on the rest of the uh population's food demands um but then also those same people that are making gardens in, in their backyards, they're generally in places where um they're gonna be fine no matter what. Mm-hmm. Um if the,
0: their plants die in their back in their garden, they'll yeah, just, then go they to can just public go, yeah.
1: Exactly. Um but it's still I mean, it's very hard to say that, that would hurt. If there's ever the scenario where um people are moving away from uh factory farmed uh crops and and animal products, um, that would probably uh, cause a ripple effect and in, in, in eco- like economic damages to food and food availability to the country. So um, if
0: someone said, if someone powerful or a group of people said, Hey, we don't want to do this factory farming stuff anymore. What we really if you need put to do. Extra
1: regulations against factory farms in order to favor the growth of mm-hmm. local farming. I think that would be bad, personally. Mm-hmm. I'm not like the end all uh, opinion on this, but I to me, that seems like that would be uh, counterproductive. Mm-hmm.
2: But um, would it be bad because. It's just not as reliable, or it just isn't as well, productive.
1: Well, I want to go, go all the way back and walk us through.
2: All right, walk um, us through. In order, This will answer a lot
0: of the questions we have. Yeah. We'll frequently interrupt you with clarifying questions, <clears throat> okay. because you're an expert, so you talk like an expert. Most okay. people don't know what you're talking about. Okay. So we will interrupt you, but tell us the story of how we got here.
1: So um, you've all seen the population growth chart. If you haven't, um, the way it looks, is just... It's a hockey stick. Yes, a hockey stick uh that's facing that's laying on the ground with the end of it straight up um there's been an extremely long gradual uh increase in time in population over time from the beginning of mm-hmm. of humanity up until about seventeen hundred
0: Is it fair to say that more people are alive right now than, than have
1: ever been alive okay. combined
0: okay
1: um, and so that very long gradual um thing it then shoots up like a like a like a rocket ship around 1700 and um, when people look at that chart uh, they tend to, to wonder oh what what caused that and then the first thing they think I remember Nick we were looking at this chart in AP biology uh, in high school and do you remember what you said no you, you just were like modern medicine <laughs> um, and then well that's what most people that's think, what right? you would like think but that's actually dying not people the living case. Okay. Um medicine will help people who are currently alive live longer but uh, medicine doesn't really drive people to have more kids. Mm. Um, what it really was is um, in the middle 1700s, that was the first industrial revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, distribution lines were improving.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I thought you were going to say people got better at sex. People got better at sex? Yeah.
1: Uh, I don't think they got better. Um, I'm sure that uh, they were having sex just
0: fine before, mm-hmm. just with uh, lower success rates yeah. afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But um, So you're saying the first industrial revolution kind of started to pave the way for more stable sources of food?
1: Yes. Um, there was better distribution. Um, and uh, for the first time, like you started to get um, roads and railroads. You could transport food from one place to another, and that would support a larger population base. Because before that, people would grow foods in their backyards, and it wouldn't go outside of the town that they were in. So if you had a great year in one township, that wouldn't affect uh any of the other townships unless they were under the um exact same growing conditions.
0: So that was like real localism.
1: Yeah. That um, was like
0: this is what we have. Yeah, exactly. So um
1: after that, um population started to take off and you see another um jump like well it's gradually up upsw- up you know, gradually increasing 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 increasing. So um, i don 't remember the exact stat, but it was like it took like five hundred years for a population to double, and then after that it took there was like a hundred a hundred years and then fifty years yeah. and then and yeah. then you know just it's almost like a
0: half life it's, yeah. like, it's like it 's like it
1: 's yeah except now we 're getting to the a bit of a, a level off mm-hmm.
0: um, and there 's a lot of reasons for that there 's a lot of reasons for that,
1: that. Yeah. Um, so as the population keeps growing, uh, what kind, what seems to have happened is that population overshoots the available food supply. So now we're worried about famines again. Mm -hmm. Um, Then uh, we were really worried about this in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. Um, There was projected to be um, massive famines in uh, places like China. Um, There were massive famines in China and people blame it on Mao Zedong. But um, there was uh, something that happened um, called the Green Revolution, which kind of saved everything. Mm-hmm. Um, it saved lives. Uh, it allowed for us to feed um, millions and millions and millions and millions of more people than we were currently able to do. Um, and what the Green Revolution actually was was it was a combination of uh, about three or four factors, so um, that allowed for us to rapidly, massively increase our our uh, crop production. And what it was is was mechanization of agriculture um, and then the development of pesticides and fertilizers. Um, and then the other one is uh, the development of new varieties okay. that were high yielding. Um, so could you give those three things again? So there was mechanization of agriculture, mm-hmm. uh, the development of new varieties, high yielding varieties, mm-hmm. and um, the uses of pesticides and fertilizers.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, that's, that's the main thing.
0: I mean, so all three of those are sort of the, the boogeymen or the enemies of certain groups of people who don't want any of that to be part of, they don't want massive mechanization. I guess they don't want, they don't want pesticides and they don't want any kind of, you don't tinker with our, you know, at least in some ways, don't tinker with our plants. So
1: that's the interesting thing is that the varieties that were created, again, they were not GMO. They were, um, they were developed through uh, not transgenic means. Um, I don't know if I said it earlier the difference between a genetically modified organism um, and a um, non-genetically modified organism that is also you know an improved variety is genetically modified technically only covers transgenic organisms and then what that means is uh, where you take a gene from another organism or it doesn't have to be from another organism it could be a gene that you make uh, and then you directly insert that gene
0: into the organism that you have. Um, like, I want this corn to grow in the dark, so I'm going to take a jellyfish gene that is bioluminescent and put it in this corn so it glows in the dark.
1: Yeah, that, that is an example of something that wouldn't work, but would be a GMO. Um,
0: this is hypothetical. There yeah, is, of course. There's no glowing corn, though I wish there were. You could,
1: yeah. you could very easily. There, there, is, there is glowing corn. They make glowing corn all the time using the exact same thing that you said, uh, the jellyfish gene GFP. We use GFP corn to, as a research tool to, um, uh, like you attach GFP to a certain protein within the, um, within the corn, and then you can see where in the cell that protein is. Um, so it's a, it's an imaging mechanism because cool. you can't see proteins uh, otherwise without uh, them producing light or something like that, or being stained.
0: You learn something new every day. So, good example. So, let me read you a couple of of predictions that people were making in the 1970s um, just to frame this in terms of what people thought was going to happen so you can kind of go into maybe a little bit more detail about why the green revolution headed this off at the past. Yeah. So, uh Paul Ehrlich who is kind of a end of the world scientist guy who loved to talk about he wrote an essay called eco catastrophe in 1969 he said most of the people who are going to die in the the greatest cataclysm in the history of man have already been born uh by 1975 some experts feel that food shortages will have escalated the present level of world hunger and starvation into famines of unbelievable proportions Other experts, more optimistic, think the ultimate food population collision will not occur until the decade of the 1980s. Uh, Same guy talks about four billion people dying off. uh, And another gentleman, Peter Gunter, a North Texas State University professor, uh, wrote this in 1970. Demographers agree almost unanimously on the following grim timetable. By 1975, widespread famines will begin in India. These will spread by 1990 to include all of India, Pakistan, China, and the Near East, Africa. By the year 2000, or conceivably sooner, South and Central America will exist under famine conditions. By the year 2000, 30 years from now, the entire world, with the exception of Western Europe, North America, and Australia, will be in famine.
1: What were they saying was the driving cause of I think mostly population. Just population growth, just unrestrained. And it's interesting that the countries they list, um, they do tend to be the ones that have overpopulation growth, and that's true. Um,
0: When was this? This There's 1970? A lot of these were um, this... I'm reading this, uh, by the way, from uh, Ben Dominant. She's the publisher of The Transom, and he, a few days ago on Earth Day, got together some of the original quotes from the original Earth Day in 1970 um, to kind of show how... (laughs) sometimes uh, our predictions aren't necessarily accurate in yeah. terms of oh, large he wrote humanity. this in
1: 1970 to show our predictions weren't accurate no
0: he wrote this a few days ago and he oh, sourced quotes okay. from 1970 the original earth day to kind of show how these predictions yeah. haven't necessarily come true and, and what we wanted to ask you is how how was the screen revolution so effective to change these kind of doomsday predictions into yeah. the world we know today where there is hunger and there is there is famine but it's nothing close to what yeah. was okay. being talked so about here. So
1: it's interesting that these come from the 60s because this happened before... Uh, it came from the 70s because this happened before. It. it started in the 60s. Okay. Uh, the guy who kind of saved the world, his name is um, Norman Borlaug, uh, and he um, he received a Nobel Prize in 1970 for his innovations with... Um, it was corn, uh, maize, and wheat uh, breeding. Um, so... Uh, over, I think, 90% of all of the calories that we consume in the world come from maize, wheat, and rice.
0: Say that again. 90% of the calories we Some, consume. Something
1: I, as, On average, as the entire world. Um, <laughs> come from corn, which is maize, uh, wheat, and rice. So those three grains, which are all uh, closely related members of the Poissier family, which is the uh, monocot grass family.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, this is why I stop eating carbs when I want to lose weight.
1: Yeah. Well, they're very calorie dense, calorically dense, um, and they have very high yields. So what uh, Borlaug did is he he had a, a maize breeding program. Um, he developed high yielding uh, varieties. Um, and it was this thing he made called shuttle breeding, which was just basically an accelerated breeding program where they did their crosses more rapidly and, and managed to get uh, <laughs> more varieties to test for um, the trace that they were looking for. And the trace that they were looking for is um, semi dwarf varieties. Uh, they dedicate less of their resources to growing upwards. Um, and then if, if a crop grows too tall, it has a tendency to fall over. So plants were, you were losing plants because they were falling over being too tall. And also they weren't uh, devoting as much of their energy to, to crop production um, or fruit production. Uh, technically, corn, rice, and wheat are all fruits.
0: That's mm-hmm. so what we call wheat grains berries, right? Um, and people refer I don't think to like that they're the, berries. Uh, well, they call that's a might be a cool colloquialism, but when I was really into making my own bread, I would buy this like raw buckets of raw wheat and they would refer to them as berries, like wheat berries. I don't know if they're technically berries, but it, it, there is sure. a, there's I a fruit analogy there.
1: Rice is an Akeen, I believe. Which is a type of fruit. There's there's lots of different classifications for the massive variety of fruits that we, we have eat. But we eat the fruit. Yeah. Yeah. Most anything that you eat from a plant, if it's not a root or um, or uh, like a stalk, it's a fruit. And so that makes a lot of things you wouldn't consider to be a fruit a fruit. Um, peppers, on, onions, or vegetables, um, peppers, tomatoes, um, corn, and all the grains. So, yeah. So I'm di- uh, getting off track. Um, so he, Porlog, um, he developed these techniques for, for, um, selective breeding, uh, rapid selective breeding. And then he wound up with, uh, wheat and maize varieties that, um, that had these traits that they were looking for. And, um, and then also, uh, other people took his techniques and used it in rice. And, um, what they called it was... Miracle rice. It was semi-dwarf, high-yield plant, yields 10 times more uh, compared to traditional varieties, and that, what that did was it co- the cost of rice was reduced from 550 dollars per ton to uh, in 1976 uh, to in 2001, 200 dollars per ton. That's and that's staggering, not adjusted for inflation either. Um, so it's like two-thirds reduction in cost, uh, even more so. Yeah, with inflation. Yeah.
0: So this is it. It made calorie-rich food massively cheaper. Yes. Uh, Like way cheaper,
1: and that that allowed is people in rural areas to uh, survive, because you know, um, like the foundation of civilization is having surplus, right? If people don't have enough food to feed their families, they're not going to have families mm-hmm. you know they generally
0: and they're certainly not going to become a blacksmith or yeah start to exactly. knitting things for other people
1: but even after this the thing that kind of happened is that population was still skyrocketing we matched it but then it still overshot um, we didn't have the famines that we thought we were going to have but um, we now are in a comp- position where we're still struggling to meet up with um, demand um, and so we're still in the same sort of situation.
0: Where Can I ask we're you a question about that? Second
1: green revolution.
0: We, we, a lot of uh, the Western countries like the United States of America, we have problems with obesity. We have problems yeah. with overconsumption. I've been told that we throw away 40% of our food. Um, yeah. So some areas of, of the planet have too much in some respects and some areas don't have enough. Mm-hmm. So is that more of a transportation issue I think honestly, this is where I was
1: getting with it. It's a, it's a civil society issue. Um, the places where we see the most rapid population growth are rural areas that are generally struggling economically, struggling um, uh, in a lot of other ways. They have lower education. Um, I, I, the what, the way I, that I see is what happening is is. These people in lower-income areas, uh, children are a valuable resource to them still.
0: Because mm-hmm. um, so if you're family farming... Yeah, you then. still
1: have an incentive to have children, um, but feeding them may be difficult. There's also you know, other issues, like poor family planning. Mm-hmm. Um, in Africa, that comes up a lot of people um, having unprotected sex or doing silly things with sex. Um And you know having a lot of unwanted uh pregnancies, and you know i you know there's that stat there's however many children die every day of starvation that's a real uh like what is it uh, twenty seven thousand or something like that that's a lot yeah mm-hmm. um that's real um but it seems to only happen in in rural um underdeveloped areas uh versus in the United States you have um you know, even American poor are the richest poor in the world. Mm-hmm. There's still hunger in the United States. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. Don't mm-hmm. want to uh, gloss over that. Um,
0: but even if you're our poor are also the richest poor in the history of the world. Sure. Yeah. Well, there's never been poor people like our poor. People. Yeah.
1: Um, even if you're homeless in the United States, you w- don't necessarily have to worry about starving.
0: A lot of the people who are starving are kids in really awful situations where exactly. their parents are spending yeah. money that the government gives them for food and exchanging it for other things like yeah. drugs or, or...
1: Well, I mean, I don't know how prevalent that situation is, but... Like in Appalachia,
0: yeah. there's this whole system of you use your um, EBT, your, your food stamps, basically, yeah. to buy um, soda, to buy a lot of soda, and then that's used as a currency... Like there's a lot of investigative reporting that's gone, gone into this. It's used as a currency for things like drugs and sex and black market and illicit things. So I don't, know. I don't understand do you, why would people use soda as a
2: because it tastes um, good, Dan.
0: Yeah,
1: well, I wanted to talk about soda because people sh- rag on it as a as an empty calorie source, but it is a calorie source. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I'm sure if you were starving, you would much rather have yeah. a 12 pack of Coca-Cola than not have a 12 yeah. pack of Coca-Cola. Oh. So, Nick, Dan's given us a little bit of the background um, of of how how we got here, but I'm sure you have a a question or two for him.
2: Yeah. So with this Green Revolution seems really good because, yes, we didn't completely eradicate hunger, obviously, but we did a good job at meeting these famine predictions and stopping them in a lot of ways. How did the western public start turning against these ideas like ryan said when you first brought it up those three things are things that i am constantly being told are bad and certain food providers and companies brag that they don't use pesticides they it's hand these are hand-picked tomatoes they're um just kind of going against that grain how did something that seems so successful turn into something that we're trying to move away from if you understand what i'm saying
1: yeah i understand what you're saying uh i don't know if i have an answer to that Mm. um
2: what what would be your guess if you could make a
1: um, guess i mean everybody wants to be a (laughs) counterculturalist
0: i mean uh perhaps it's it's that when you have so much of a basic good
1: yeah you lose sight of of the things that are really like important and like the things that you yeah. had had, you not had these, you would definitely need them. But if you have them, um, continue what you're saying, guys. I think you can say it better.
0: Yeah, if you have a, so much of a basic good that you take it for granted, yeah, then you start to critique aspects of it that may not have seemed important. Yeah, before. I think that's a good point because like a lot of times you have some. Like this is an example, um,
1: the it's a, maybe a terrible example, but the new Zelda game came out. Mm-hmm. It was given 10 out of 10 everything already was, a good example it was uh everyone said it was amazing mm-hmm. and then there's people that are like it's great but i have uh, you know i don't like this part of the game mm-hmm. and then they're just complaining about small mm-hmm. areas of the, the game mm-hmm. when the overall game is like one of the most amazing mm-hmm. things that's ever been produced it's a video game mm-hmm. um and then you know pe- there's still people complaining about it mm-hmm. and some of the complaints may be valid mm-hmm. but
0: But the scale. It's the scale. It's like, would you rather not have this game at all? Yeah. And then when you take it away from the game space and you start talking about things that are necessary for survival, I I really do like to to say that our culture is like a bunch of spoiled brats, I think is a a polemic version of it. But I think a charitable version of it is we are used to having all of our basic needs met.
1: Yes.
0: And when you're used to having all your basic needs met, you aren't worried about that so you start to worry about other things like is this really good for the planet uh is this being controlled by large corporations that maybe don't have consumers best interests at heart yeah
1: people always go against capitalism in as a you know force for evil or something like that but it's also been the greatest force for advancement in the history of, of the world
0: um well that's that's your opinion white man
1: yeah uh without capitalism okay did i tell you that uh Forlogs' research was funded by the uh Rockefeller Center, so Nor- Norman Rockefeller Rockefeller. Rockefeller um, the Rockefeller Foundation became concerned about those famines and then they, they funded this research out of their profits. Yeah. You know, uh, so we without- don't
0: have to convince Nick and I that capitalism has an upside. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I I do think that Nick, you you see this on the ground all the time because you're around university students, you're hearing these conversations. If you had to give the the strongest version of their argument, how would you articulate it? I
2: think the strongest version would be a dismissal of the corporate side of it. So not that Mm -hmm. these processes aren't good or that they don't have good results but that things like monsanto like you know monsanto is that classic evil corporation like it just fits Mm -hmm. that stereotype so they do
0: really crazy stuff
2: yeah and (laughs) they do i
1: I love monsanto I just maybe i shouldn't say yeah but um a lot of the things that people uh criticize monsanto for like the uh sterile seeds Mm -hmm. um that's extremely important that they have sterile seeds because the main actual concern about GMOs, one of them, is that um, you could have uh, interbreeding with with uh, native species, um, and if you didn't have sterile seeds, you know those seeds could escape into the wild and then sprout. So having sterile seeds is very important. People rap on Monsanto for doing that because they force the farmers to uh, buy seeds every year, but that's farmers don't have any complaints about that.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of the lawsuits that are documented in like. Food ink yeah, what what I've where, never where seen Food ink. What will happen is is Monsanto because seeds move. Yeah. Like their seeds will get onto another farmer's property that's not using it's... their seed and then they'll sue them into the ground for oh. like some kind of intellectual property, you know. Mm-hmm. Was that real though? I
1: like you that's how food ink presented it, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Was so I'm the sure actual they're facts? not
0: unbiased. I mean, I'd have to look into do, do the research, but let's take them at their word if that's happening. That's bad. That's corporate kind of pir- not piracy but you know, corporate oppression yeah. And you don't have to convince me that capitalism has done more good than harm. Um I one of the ways I like to frame this issue of taking things for granted that you have so much of is that and I am stealing this from somebody. But environmentalism is a luxury good. Yeah, environmentalism sure. is a luxury good because before To have environmentalism, you need to have something that's harming the environment. And to have something that's harming, harming the environment, you have to have an industrial revolution. And the industrial revolution was a human response to subsistence, survival, living, right? So yeah. to even get... This sounds kind of Marxist of me, Nick, but mm-hmm. to even get to the place where you can have a concern for environmentalism, you already had to have added layers and layers and layers of luxury, yeah. right? There, There's no... There's no Garden of Eden, we were all living just fine, and no one ever lost a kid to starvation, and, and everyone was healthy, and then all of this evil mechanization and urbanization, industrialization and corporatization came in and just ruined everything for everyone. It And, and Nick and I talk about this a lot in terms of parasites. Environmentalism... Is in a way a parasite. It's living off of the larger thing that had to happen for it to exist. In the same way that the federal government is a parasite off of the economy writ large, right?
1: Yeah, parasite and has a very negative. Connotation. It has a ne-
0: negative connotation, and and I often say I'm not. I don't mean this to be as negative as as it sounds, yeah. but the smaller thing dependent upon the larger thing doesn't live without the larger thing. Yeah. So it's parasitic it be, in that you know, it's maybe existence.
1: Could
0: Say it again. Commensialism, where it's not. Uh,
1: it's, it's types of mutualism, parasitism. Um, the commensal organism, it's a. Uh, let, me, let me make sure I get the.
0: Well, yeah, I well, you're looking look that up. I'll finish my thought that it's parasitic insofar, not that it's harming, that's not the part of the analogy I'm using, but that its survival depends upon the survival of the, the larger host organism. Mm-hmm. So you don't get a federal government without a bunch of people paying taxes. And you don't get environmentalism without advanced civilizations that have used industrialization, mechanization, urbanization, things like that. So you, you don't even, you, you don't get to, hey, let's clean up our water sources without a society that has that capacity.
1: Yeah, so the reason I say commensuralism maybe is a better word than parasitism is parasitism is when one organism is drawing benefit from the other one while harming the other one. Mm-hmm. Commensalism
0: is where one organism is drawing benefit mm-hmm. while not affecting the only problem the other with commensalism is I don't know how to pronounce it, mm. and the second problem is no one else knows what it means. <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> but we can change that, Dan. Okay. Well, let, you're um, right. You're right, by the way.
2: Okay. Let me just be the devil's advocate, and I'm not saying that I agree with any of this. In fact, I don't. I'll be very honest, but. I think a critique would be, it's not that these, the Green Revolution systems are bad in and of themselves, just like Marx would say, industrialization isn't completely bad in and of itself, Mm. and in fact is necessary to get to the point of history where a proletariat revolution can begin. But that, like that, the food sources and the operations that we do with that have been molded and directed by individual interest in capitalism to be focused in areas of privilege so like and that's kind of what we said earlier where perhaps the issue now isn't just that we can't produce enough food but that africa doesn't have anything to offer these companies and so why would you know you can either sell to an american consumer base are you can sell to an African consumer base. And if you look at that from a completely economic point of view, you can see where not a lot of effort has been put into that. And when I said Monsanto meets that classic evil corporation stereotype, I was talking more about them producing Agent Orange for our government in the 60s. That's actually not true.
1: It's It was a different company that Monsanto actually wasn't the one that produced agent like they got, they had um, changes in ownership and then for some reason, the the name remained the same. It's completely different um,
0: company. So let's at least agree on this. There is a perception that is yeah. widespread that yeah. Monsanto mm-hmm. is an evil corporation, right? Yes. Yeah. So and whether that's built on all the right facts, any,
1: they haven't done anything wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I won't. I won't say that. Um, but I think that people. You think it's overstated? Definitely overstated. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I mean, and they obviously they pick and choose. I mean, the Monsanto website itself says that they still maintain responsibility for agent orange really yeah so their website itself says from 1965 to 1969 the former monsanto company manufactured agent orange for the u.s military as a web as a wartime government contractor the current monsanto company has maintained responsibility for this product since we were spun off of even though separate an independent agricultural company in 2002
1: yeah that's what i was talking about yeah okay
0: you're both right Mm -hmm. (laughs) so so moving forward it continues to be interesting to me this what we we're we're critiquing what we have going back to the kind of we have so much of this thing these calories these easily consumable calories wheat corn rice we're critiquing what we have because we want a better version of it at the same time as people in other parts of the world are desperate for it so practically speaking how do we i mean nick nick just frame the problem in economic terms and in market terms, how do we um, at least get what we have into the hands of people who desperately need it?
1: So, the think that's what I, my fear is, um, if we do manage to meet the uh, agricultural needs of um, the growing world population, uh, my fear is, is that, uh, just like what happened during the Green Revolution, we met the needs, but they still overshot it. That's going to keep happening. Mm. Um, I don't see any reason why that would stop happening. Could you and, explain why? And the, uh, the way to get it to stop happening is um, it doesn't happen in the United States, it doesn't happen in westernized uh, countries. And I think really what it is is the development of a stable economic system. Mm-hmm. Um, stable econo- economic systems promote the development. People, you know, doing other jobs. Um, you're no longer an agrarian economy. Mm-hmm. Um, having a child uh, is no longer incentivized as a as a as a work hand. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure that I could say that uh, like that's the cause that mm-hmm. children are. You know, use it as a precious commodity. Well,
0: we, we do supply. know that the hundreds of but millions of people from. that have that's, escaped poverty in the last 20 to 30 years, most of them have been in India and China. Yes, that's what those and are. India countries and China, China have, have seen an explosion in non agrarian economic sectors. Yeah, and
1: their population growth rates have subsequently.
0: I mean, China also did the one-child yes, policy, which was a disaster and uh, an ethical, just yeah. abomination. Um, and now there's hundreds of millions more men than women in a certain generation that's, of Chinese. Yeah, it's terrible. Which that, is another but, problem. You
1: know, maybe if they didn't do that and they still have the same...
0: Uh, I think people would have figured it out.
1: Yeah, yeah China's doing a lot better than it was uh, during the... Now, so, hear, so you're whatever. saying
0: it's a fundamentally economic problem?
1: I think it is.
0: Would you also say that there are cultural aspects to it? Uh, not in
1: a... I mean, I'm not... I'm a Western cultures, European so person and my really culture say. is better,
0: but it's... And, and there are there are deep, deep problems with our culture. I mean, I don't like that we have a culture that seems like it's increasingly hostile to children, especially seeing my wife go through um, pregnancy. I don't know what you
1: mean because I haven't seen this
0: before. Yeah, so... Hollywood in particular, mm-hmm. the industry that my wife is in. It's almost like children are these aliens that aren't welcome. Um, you know, rates of abortion in Manhattan and in New York are around society.
1: 50%. Right, they don't fit into, like, the hipster sort
0: of... Well, frame. yeah, it's just they're, in, they're, in, they're, in, they're a burden and an inconvenience. Yeah. It's the opposite of the farmhand kind yeah. of thing where, oh, this is an economic benefit to us. Now children, when you're living in certain kinds of societies, like highly technologically advanced societies, children you don't have children to benefit yourself economically. So the the economic um, incentive is entire. There's a disincentive to have Mm -hmm. children, right? We know that a huge percentage of abortions are done for economic reasons. It's like, I can't have this kid right now for economic reasons. Right. So we've kind of flipped that whole model on on its head. So I'm saying all that just to say, I'm not a huge fan of that culture. So I'm not trying to preach like the, cultural um, superiority of what we're doing right now. But I would say that, there, at least to my knowledge, there are some kind of cultural um, sensibilities that go along with some of the economic things that you've identified in places where there is overpopulation, there are famine. Uh, you mentioned some of the uh, sexual um, patterns of certain um, places in Africa, things of that nature. So there are there are very human elements that aren't just like systemic level elements that yeah. go into like one of them is war there's war happening in Sudan right now, and there's a famine I,
1: yeah well war will definitely decrease stability so risk. not
0: just economic st- stability is needed, but governance right yeah, like rule of law, property rights, and what Nick and I would probably hubristically call civilization like like that this process of uh, us humanistically pursuing um the common good education's part of it for me like it, and this comes off as like so paternalistic and so pro western but once again i hate certain elements of my own culture so i'm not preaching the the superiority of it but i think i think for me mathematically it seems that most people are rational actors not all the time but most people are like well if i don't have enough food I shouldn't have. Kids. I'm not going to have more kids. Yeah. But I think somehow that, that doesn't happen. But for somehow that still, that still happens for, for a lot of it people. It happens
1: in the United States too, I think. I, um, where, you know, people have too many kids, but I, it doesn't happen as much. I don't know. I can't speak to it. I, I'm not, um, that's fine. You know what I mean? But I, it's definitely something that happens. Uh, people miscalculate for whatever reason. Um, and I don't think that there's maybe like, I don't think it's cultural. Um I think it has to do with the systemic issues. Okay. Um,
0: for, in my mind. Nick, any thoughts on this?
2: Well, we're also dealing with something that is not only systemic and cultural, but it's also primal. So, I mean, the need to reproduce and to have sex, that desire is baseline forever. And I think obviously history shows that the ways we view sex, whether it's like a post-romantic joining of two subjects and the beauty of childhood, or if it's more of an economic, you know, Daughtry dowry son inherits working type of model, there is still the individual experience of you want to have most people would like to have sex, you know, and so, and I don't think that's a cultural thing. Like Dan said, I think it's almost like an animal and not animal makes it sound like it's bad, but it's an
1: educational thing. Yeah.
2: And I think that whenever we talk- Well, the desire to have sex is a biological thing. Yeah.
1: Yes. But then the, des- the de- countering the desire with uh responsible mm-hmm. uh, pra- practices is an educational. Yeah.
2: Thing. Well, it's, it's um, not only just countering it, but putting it through appropriate channels and allowing, you know, people to understand that you can't have sex with six women and not use protection or birth control or anything and not have these consequences. And that's like like we were saying that is a societal thing in that maybe these places just don't have the resources to have that education. I mean, and not just literal education, but implied education. I mean, in America and in Western countries we also have culture so we have ideas that are communicated through movies and film and stuff like we We don't have to have a teacher be like if you have too much sex you're gonna have a lot of kids we also just have narratives of yeah we can
0: watch all the angsty teenage pregnancy yeah. movies and you know, i'm 15
2: and pregnant 15 or whatever yeah um
0: yeah that's what i was trying to say earlier maybe i was saying it indelicately is in my opinion in some places in the United States we have so much of that that it's harmful in in my in my philosophical and ethical so opinion much what? so much of that um, restriction of childbearing as burden right mm-hmm. so so yeah, i can see so in some places we've overdone it and i'll tell you a specific way that this this happens that i've read a lot of articles by women in this position that because of movements towards gender equality, feminism, because of our, our economy and how advanced it is, and the kinds of jobs and job training, because of birth control and uh, later family formation and um, monogamy pairings, because of a lot of different factors. Many women find themselves in their mid to late 30s or even early 40s, and they would have liked to have children, but now find it a, an enormous challenge biologically speaking. So this is just one manifestation of our culture which kind of pushes back on that. We would call it, I would call it maybe even like a hyper responsible child, you know, vis-a-vis childbearing culture whereas you have some other cultures that are experiencing still the opposite problem where Childbearing is just something that kind of happens to you, and there's very mm-hmm. little birth control and very little family planning, and
1: and then very little options for the, the woman in that yeah. circumstance.
0: So, so it's another manifestation of this thing where sometimes the West has so much of something that it might not be, in my opinion, the best. That we're out of balance on the opposite side in in many respects, but that the more the more urgent need is felt by cultures that are different than ours that don't have the surplus, don't have the fundamental economic surplus that we yeah. have so that we can make these kinds of mistakes like, Oh, I'm 36 and I want kids. and But like you never starve to death. <laughs> so, you know, so these other cultures and areas and people, real human beings who are struggling with feeding themselves, feeding their children, they have a much more urgent need than any of whatever our kind of, secondary needs are like maybe we're psychologically affected by the fact that we're not around children enough and so we become sort of selfish narrow-minded people like Nick and I have talked about before that you forget sometimes that you are siloed in the types of people that you spend time with So Nick you were talk- talking about that yeah, in, sure. in reference to like being in a college town yeah the other day
2: well it's just you just see everyone who's either in their early 20s are in their, like, late 40s, early 50s. And those are, like, the two demographics of people that you see. And then you drive to the suburbs and you see, like, children and elderly people. And you're like, oh, these people don't go to college, but they exist. And I just never see them. So, it's you know, it's just a really surreal experience sometimes to understand that. And I... I I wanted to clarify, too, I wasn't saying that these cultures are, like, inept, are stupid, that they can't figure this out. It's, I was more agreeing with the fact that they just don't have that luxury to start producing educational programs and cultural programs that enforce these ideas. You know, like, there's not even enough money for, like, Ali McBeal's a powerful woman and she has to think about babies sometime or whatever it's is that even relevant anymore why did i bring up Ellie I, don't okay. I don't I know i don't know if Ellen it is, can... so probably not yeah. Yeah. ugly I mean, it's from no. the 90s
0: i can't no. think of one it's fine um I, I agree with you i think sometimes though it's what you said earlier where i mean freud said this like civilizations rise and fall with with eros with you know with the the desire to have sex like men in particular heterosexual men have done crazy things to try to win over women they've built cities they've started wars like this is kind of part of our human heritage and uh when some of the sort of early western christian missionaries would go to some some far-flung tribe and try to help them with this specific problem of family planning um especially i've heard concrete stories about Indian villages where they would use sort of like a calendar of like, Hey, have sex on these days. Don't have sex on these days. You won't have as many kids. Yeah. Yeah. So it's family planning, the rhythm method, whatever you want to call it. And like dudes weren't having that. Like they're, they're guys, like guys are guys. Like, and so we're not exactly all, you know, exactly the same sexually, but there is this procreative urge the sexual (laughs) urge. And, and oftentimes the best efforts of these, you know, Catholic or whatever missionaries to try to say, Hey, why don't you have like, you know, just a few less kids, fewer kids, um, they would totally fail because people want what they want, you know? And, and it's hard to sometimes to convince people not to do something that they think is going to be the most beneficial or pleasurable thing for them to do. Like that's, it, you're not going to you're not going to convince everybody
2: like most yeah. problems it exists in multiple arenas so it i agree mm-hmm. it is a structural issue yeah. it is an individual issue it is a systematic issue it is a scientific issue but it's almost like the amalgamation of all of those things creates why it is a complicated problem there isn't just an answer of if we all did this no one would die from hunger anymore it is
0: yeah, let me ask you like a hypothetical question. If we made like the most junky food, just Pringles or um Twinkies, stuff with tons of preservatives, white flour, white sugar, all that stuff, never goes bad basically. And then we shipped it to these places. Would those calories do anything for those people that are that are that are in famine? I'm
1: Yes. If you are not meeting like the basis, you know, necessary amount of calories per day. Any source of calories will help you. So infrastructure is a big part of this. Then infrastructure is a huge part of this.
0: Um, that's why I have we not said that already because yeah, you, you said it in the context of the history distribution and, 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 and in the seventeen hundreds. Uh, yeah. How basically what are one, one of the big parts of the life expectancy going up and the population going up was that people were now able to get things from other places that they yes. couldn't before.
1: Um, yeah. So that's. Also, you know, a a major problem in these areas is distribution. They're still very local and agrarian. Um, They, you know, the food from the village tends to stay in the village in a lot of these very rural places. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: And I've heard, I don't know if this is still true, that it costs more to get something from the coast of Africa to the interior of Africa than it does to get it from New York City to that the coast of Africa. probably is completely true. I, because I, of the efficiencies of shipping, yeah. of uh, the whole sh- universal shipping container thing, barges. We've really figured out how to get stuff from coast to coast really cheaply. Within, there's
1: not very many good roads. Uh, that's, you know, I've never been to Africa, so I can't speak to it directly, but I mm-hmm. I wouldn't doubt that. Um, so, yeah, distribution is is the crux of this problem. Like... We say in the United States, we, you know, we waste, like, I think you said it already, 40%. 40% of our food goes directly into the trash bin. I thought it was actually more than that, but uh, half of our food. Um, but that's, if you have the distribution, that's perfectly acceptable. Mm. Um, if we didn't have that distribution, we would probably waste less of our food because, you know, um, it would stay with us and there's, there's no way you can eat all of the food you make it 's going to go bad, but um, being able to ship off the extra food um, and have a built in margin for an acceptable loss yeah. that 's part of the whole system i don 't like, I to when prove I was, that this is
0: a transportation infrastructure issue let 's dream up a, a thought project or a scenario in which we had portals where we could take just our extra food one thing and, first. and put it through to other people that living in these these rural villages.
1: They say that we produce enough food to feed the world. Mm-hmm. We do if we had zero waste, mm-hmm. but zero waste is a pipe dream. Yeah, okay. um, that's what I want to say first. But now, yeah. So sure. if we
0: had these, like you know, the video game portal, uh-huh. if you had these portals, yeah, that you could just put like, up, oh, I ate half my piece of pie. I want to give it to someone in Kenya or whatever. Like, that that thought experiment helps illustrate that this is, this is, to a great degree, an infrastructure and transportation issue, yeah. rather than a, we just can't figure out how to grow enough food. We can't figure out how to grow enough food in the places where we can't figure out how to grow enough food. And that's
1: another issue, is that there are poor farming practices in these areas. And I went to a seminar a while ago about uh, the goal of, of what they were doing was to take Uh, Proven farming practices to teach them to Mm -hmm. the rural.
0: Yeah, I've heard of like uh, work trips to do that. Yeah,
1: And, you know, that's another great way to combat this problem. Because the problem, there's two problems. So we still are not producing enough food to feed these people in the areas that we need to be producing. And then also um, the distribution. So Mm -hmm. like if you can. You can
0: solve either one.
1: Yeah. Right. um, Solving both at the same time is the uh, way to do it. Um, part of the, you know, like science is another thing, um, you know, increasing yields per field, but I think the more pressing issue is even outside of, uh, research is to just, uh, optimization of the lands that we currently have. And, uh, a big problem is like finding arable land, but uh, you can maintain arable land a lot better in the places that uh, where there's bad farming practices, where they make their land not arable by you know, uh, you know, not taking care of the soil, mm-hmm. uh, growing certain crops that are really uh, nitrogen uh, heavy. They use a lot of nitrogen, um, and they don't have fertilizer uh, readily available to them. So there's, there's lots of optimizations that can potentially be done that I think are really important to do, um, but maybe
0: difficult to implement. That's good. So, takeaways from this is there are there are there are some personal elements. There are some sort of government level national elements. There are some systemic, economic kind of I would say you know kind of what Marxists identify uh, elements. But there's also really practical technological. We still can improve on plant science and yields. We still can improve on um, roads, bridges, infrastructure. And we can still improve on people 's farming techniques, and we can attempt to change people 's minds about how to do family planning, but there's no guarantee that people will will yeah. decide to do that
1: I mean I think the solution to this problem lies in you know meeting the demands and then also finding a way to slow population and the um, you know the most proven method in terms of history is industrialization and uh, and education. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, so globalization will almost naturally solve some of this.
1: Yeah, if if we continue like if it, you know,
0: if it's sustainable. Yeah, and we I choose mean, to do globalization it.
1: Globalization can also hurt uh, rural areas mm-hmm. especially. Mm-hmm. So maybe not. I mean, it's it's very difficult for African countries to get in on the, the globalization yeah. game. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um but, you know, I don't, there has to be something, like maybe not through capitalism, but through uh,
0: charity or something. I don't know. There's there's a great that- film on this called Poverty Inc. It's on Netflix, and it really helps show how many people in these developing countries just want access to markets. They just yeah. want to be able to not get flooded. Like Haitians, Haitian farmers want to get not get flooded with free rice all the time, you know, because it actually doesn't, it yeah. actually doesn't help them. But that's another, kind of another topic. Nick, before we wrap up, did you have any final thoughts or questions?
2: Not really. I I think I've learned a lot more than I thought I needed to know about this. It, just showing how complicated of an issue this is. And it's... Yeah,
0: I thought this was going to be like an all-science talk, but yeah. it got very... It's you know. not
1: science... Food security is, is like one-quarter part science, mm-hmm. and then like... The rest is economics and anthropology. Now I know so, that. Actually, that's why I said that at the beginning before we were recording. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it's a very complicated issue. Um, and you know science is not the only way to solve it. And that's another thing that I wanted to say is that um, we're at a point right now where we need another green revolution to meet the demands. Um, and what I think the scientific community wants it to come from is through um, GMOs. And we have GMOs now, but they... Are, they they didn't bring the same kind of improvement that the um, new varieties of rice, wheat, and mm-hmm. corn did. In the, so we're uh, not there yet. Yeah, so that was a tenfold increase in production. GMOs have not matched that. Mm-hmm. Um, like, they, GMOs bring costs down, uh, pesticide costs and um, herbicide costs, but they don't um, dramatically in- increase yields in the way that those other advancements have. And... Those other advancements were so great that it's difficult to build off of them. You know what I mean? Like, it's difficult to optimize crops beyond 10 times yield increase. Um, So it is a big challenge going forward. I think it is a meetable challenge um, as long as we're also investing in in development of, of Civil society. Mm-hmm.
0: It might be in that 75% that's not direct science research. It might be that that in those factors is the next green revolution. Yeah. Sure. All right. We're going to leave it there for today. Um, thanks, Dan, for joining us. Uh, we'll be back with an, a new episode next week, uh, hopefully with another expert. But if it's not with another expert, it'll just be Nick and I giving you our unsolicited opinions on philosophy and pop culture. But for now, uh, this has been Ryan and Nick. And Dan, thanks for having me, guys. Thank you. Talk to you next week.
2: Bye. Bye. Bye.